We have been in a series, we're teaching through the book of John, but we're going to take a pause today. And this Independence Day weekend, I actually want to look at a passage of scripture that has had um, perhaps one of the largest impacts on the course of history um, as any other scripture or really any literature in the history of the world. And so uh, to get you there in your mind, I, I just need you to um, go to the Middle East with me in your, in your head, okay? So just picture you're on a, a vast plain in the desert. Um, craggy mountains are coming out. It's a wilderness. Um, it's barren. You know, there's some little scrub bushes and stuff coming up. Uh, you, you look around and there's a sea of tents that surround you. There's animals, there's tents, there's, there's people. It's this giant camp in the desert. You have just come out of the only life you've ever known, which was slavery. You are used to getting up every day and going out and doing what somebody else tells you to do all day long. And then if you're lucky, you've come home and hopefully be able to do something to take care of your family. But that's all changed now. Now, you, now you're going out, and, and for your food, you're collecting this strange little, like, flaky um, stuff on the ground called, what is it, literally, um, what is it, manna, and, and you're making, you know, banana bread and banana uh, pancakes, and eating that, and that's like your day in, day out. You've come through, you, you were terrified, you thought you were going to be murdered by the Egyptian army, you were backed up against the sea, and then in the most dramatic way, the sea parted. You've been following a cloud and a pillar of fire, and it's led you to this place. You've been following your, your leader who's following the pillar and the cloud, his name is Moses. And now as you're camped out at the base of this mountain known as Mount Sinai, the mountain is covered by a dense, thick cloud, almost like a volcanic cloud, but different. There's something otherworldly about this. It is, in fact, a cloud. And inside of this cloud is the very presence, the Shekinah glory of God himself. The mountain shakes the mountain trembles, and you watch your leader as he walks up this mountain and disappears into the clouds. Forty days later, he'll come down this mountain with two tablets of stone on which the very finger of God inscribed these words. Exodus 20, verse 1, and the Lord and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do, you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. The Ten Commandments 
This is the covenant that God makes with his people. This is their side of the bargain after he has rescued and delivered them. This is God uh, declaring his expectation of what a well-ordered society that worships and serves the one true God looks like 3,500 years ago. And 3,500 years ago on this mountain in the Sinai Peninsula, these words, uh, some of the most influential words in history were spoken and written by God. And while in modern times you may hear these words and they may sound a little bit antiquated or old-fashioned, what you have to understand is how revolutionary they have been throughout the course of history. These famous words that were spoken by God himself um, have gone on to shape societies and laws and our understanding of justice all around the world for 3,500 years now. In fact, one of, the, one of the founders of our nation, our sixth president, the son of our second president, John Adams, declared this, that the law given from Sinai was a civil and municipal as well as a moral and religious code. It contained many statutes of universal application, laws essential to the existence of men in society, and most of which have been enacted by every nation which ever professed any code of laws. In fact, as the founders, uh, there was a study a number of years ago where they looked at 15,000 documents from, our, from the founders of this nation, and the vast majority, um, the, uh, out of those, the most highly cited source was the scriptures for establishing the rule of law and what it would look like to have a free society. And most specifically, this law that was given on Mount Sinai. See, we tend to think of freedom in America. I mean, we love this weekend, you know, we love fireworks and trucks and patriotic songs in America, right? Just me, nobody else, okay. And we eat hot dogs and we do all this stuff, right? And we celebrate freedom. We celebrate the freedom we have. But we have a misconception in this nation that freedom um, actually just sort of means I can do whatever I want as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. We always kind of qualify it. Other than that, I can do whatever I want. See, the founders didn't exactly see it this way. They didn't see freedom as being that version. They envisioned a nation where the people actually self-governed their behavior according to a higher law. In fact, John Adams, uh, our second president, one of the most influential men in the founding of our country, he signed the Declaration of Independence. He said this, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. See, he had a recognition. The founders had a recognition that for this experiment in freedom to work, it's going to take everybody not just doing whatever they think they want to do in the moment, but actually governing their behavior by a higher concept, by a higher law. Twelve of the original 13 colonies actually adopted the entire Decalogue that I just read to you into their civil and criminal laws. There was only one holdout, and that was Rhode Island. They didn't adopt the whole thing. They only adopted the, the last six commandments into their civil laws. So this document, not only in the United States, but in nations all over the world, has played an incredible, incredible role. This text in how nations have been shaped and formed and how we even understand freedom. So I want to take a few minutes and talk about what made these Ten Commandments so influential in the world. Now, I want to start by highlighting the first four of these commandments. And most people, if you ask them, like, do a man on the street, they can only really name probably three, four, five of the Ten Commandments. In fact, had I not just refreshed your memory, uh, do a quick mental inventory, see what you can remember. Some of you are like, that was five minutes ago. I don't remember anything. Um, and usually... People don't, they don't even remember. These first four, they don't even remember. You can get, usually you'll get the later ones. Everybody can kind of remember, you know, don't kill, don't steal, uh, usually adultery, you know. Everybody kind of remembers those, and you probably remember them sort of in that, I watched this one funny man on the street, and the guy's like, uh, don't kill, don't steal. Good Southern accent, right? Maybe you remember them in whatever, you know, the preacher's voice was. You, you remember growing up as a kid. But almost no one remembers 
the root where these commandments are rooted in the first four that really set the stage for the understanding of the rest of these that govern how we treat each other. And so God speaks these top 10 commandments in history, and here's how he starts. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery. I am your God. Right from the very beginning, what he's communicating is it's personal. I have a name. And in the Hebrew, we see he, he doesn't just introduce himself to his people as God, the sort of generic term for God, Elohim, but he, he gives us the holy, sacred name of God. Y-H-W-H is the equivalent in the English language. We think that perhaps that was pronounced Yahweh or Yehovah, some have have called it. It's this idea. It says, I am that I am. I am the existent one. I am. But not just impersonal. I am personal. I am your God. I am your God. And what's so amazing about this, he doesn't just introduce himself as the all-powerful creator of the universe, as awesome and as impressive as that is. He actually right at the beginning of this code that's actually a covenant between God and his people. He introduces himself to them as your God, your personal God who moved on your behalf, not just the creator. See, in philosophy, like Aristotle's idea of the unmoved mover, you had a creator that sets things in motion and then abandons his creation. And right from the very beginning, God wants to establish the fact that I'm I am the creator, but I am your God who moves in history and moves in your life, who has moved to rescue and redeem you. I am active, I'm alive, and I care about you, my people. You are my people. You are mine. And remember, up to this point, we don't really see God making laws and requiring things out of his people. In fact, um, there was a simple invitation to them to be rescued and delivered. If you remember, what we see back at the beginning of Exodus is this on the first Passover is they, God just called them literally to trust him. I want you to take the Passover lamb, which you, you're not going to understand this now, but this is pointing forward to when I myself will send my son who will make the ultimate sacrifice for humankind to save you from your sins. And I want you to take the Passover lamb and paint, paint it on the top and the sides of the doorpost. You pass under that, and it's an illustration of your trust in me, and you're in. You're my people. And now that you're in my family, now we're going to talk about the family rules. Now we're going to talk about the, the code that is going to help this society thrive. See, I've called you to be a light to the nations. And if you live this way, it's going to help you thrive. And it's going to help you fulfill your purpose and your destiny as being a light to the nations. And you're going to experience freedom and joy as it was meant to be intended, as it was intended to be experienced in life. That's what God is doing here. And it all starts with the fact that he brings them into relationship first. He rescues and redeems them first, which is the picture of our life if you're a follower of Jesus. You didn't work to earn it. You didn't keep a set of codes that somehow tipped the scale in your favor. No, it was a free gift of God. He moved. He loved you first. He loved you first. He gave his life for you first. And now your call is by the power of his Holy Spirit to live out of gratitude and love for what he's done for you. And you know what? The way he calls you to live is actually the best way to live. It's the way that actually brings freedom in your life. Not the freedom of I get to do whatever I want, whenever I want, you know, as long as nobody else gets hurt, which newsflash, and here's the dirty secret behind that, is somebody always gets hurt. Sin always has consequences. The wages of sin is death. Sin always brings death to, to relationships in lives. Now this covenant is a response to God as he says, I want to I teach you how you can thrive and experience freedom and joy as a society. All you've known is slavery. I want you to experience real life as it was intended to live. I am your God. He goes on, you shall have no other gods before me. I want to be your God. I want to be your one and only now that I have already rescued you and brought you through the Red Sea and redeemed you and saved you. I want to be your only God. And see, God knows there is no other God. Oh, there's angels and there's spiritual powers and principalities, 
that would try to convince you to follow them instead and go their way and tell you that real freedom is found in saying, God, enough of you stiff-arming God and, and doing whatever in the world you want. The enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. You're going to see that in John shortly. But that's not, God says, actually, I am the only God. I am the creator. And the way that life is lived, the way that life is best experienced is when you bring your life into alignment with the way the world was actually designed to work. That's, you want to go read the Proverbs? All the Proverbs, the, the heart of the message of the Proverbs is if you want to actually um, enjoy life the way that God intended it, you will do best if you align your life with the way the world was actually designed to work. If you choose to, to live your life in submission to a divine lawgiver, you shall have no other gods before me. Do not let something else become at the center of your life. You shall not make a carved image. No idols. No idols. Nothing else before me. You look at around at all these other cultures, and they, many of them had, almost all of them had multiple gods, multiple idols, small g gods. They would carve, they would make with their own hands. And, and oftentimes, they would be worshiping demonic spirits that they didn't even understand. I mean, this is kind of a foreign concept to us. However, if you travel to many places of the world, uh, you, will, you will experience this. You will see actual physical idols. And I can just tell you from experience traveling and doing missions work around the world, there are areas where, there, where I think the dark spiritual realm is even more active and more in your face. Satan tends to try to hide out in our culture and work behind the scenes, I think. But it's just blatant. It's in your face. I've had some crazy experiences on missions trips. It's a reality. And he says, I don't want you to go... Anywhere else for your source of truth. I don't want you to say, I don't know if I really like this, this code. Why don't I go over and ask Molech over there what he thinks? Because you know what? Molech will ask for things that are completely the antithesis of my heart for my people. In fact, if you worship and you go after other idols, you'll find yourselves doing things you could never have imagined, like giving your, your children, sacrificing them, burning them in the fire because Molech demands it. And that's exactly what would happen down the course of Israel's history as they would abandon God. He says... You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So the first two commandments really have, it's about honoring God as the center of your life, him exclusively. It's about who is God. And, and there's one God, Yahweh is the one true God, the only one worship, worthy of worshiping and serving amongst all the dark spiritual powers. The only one worth worshiping and, and serving is the one true God, the creator of everything. And then he says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. This is about honoring God's, God's name or literally the reputation and authority of God. It's not just, I mean, we think of this one as, you know, not trying not to say that thing your granddad always said when he hit his thumb with a hammer, right? Ah, don't say that. Um, and that's good. Don't say that. We don't use God's name flippantly, right? I, it just grates on me, especially when um, the name of Jesus Christ, there's an expletive put in between Jesus and Christ. Oh, it grinds on me, right? We don't do that. But it's the, there's a bigger meaning than that. It's not just like when you get frustrated and stub your toe, don't say this. That's not the heart of it. Actually, it goes much deeper. The heart of this is don't misuse God's name. Don't leverage God's name to do things that God would never condone. Don't say, God, well, God would want me to do this. See, this is what many of the atrocities in history have been things that God have, has said twisted or leveraged to accomplish things that are completely outside of his revealed heart. You see this over and over again. And people like to leverage God to get whatever they want. Leverage God's name and abuse God's name. Verse 8, remember 
the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. So we have honoring God as the center of our lives. We have honoring God's name. We have honoring God by acknowledging our dependence on him. And this is beautiful. The Sabbath, every time you pause, he tells his people, I want you to remember that in six days I created the heavens and the earth. And the reason you can pause, and think of this, how, how foreign this would have seemed to someone who's used to just scraping by and barely surviving, and you just work, work, work seven days a week, or you might starve to death. An agrarian society, they didn't have, you know, a weekend and paid federal holidays. This is an agrarian society where if you don't work, you, you, you very likely starve. And God actually says, no, I want you to actually do this very counterintuitive thing. Every, I want you to work hard six days, work ethic. I was part of the Puritan work ethic that built this country. But then the seventh day, you're going to pause. You're going to rest. You're going to remember that life isn't all about, uh, completely about success and about achievement, that life is about bigger, deeper things and worshiping me, honoring me, connecting with your family. And as a nation, what this would have done is bring a giant collective sigh of relief. Can you imagine to a people that all they knew was seven days a week slavery? Okay. But also fear. And what God's teaching them here is, no, no, no. I want you to realize you can trust me to pick up the slack in your life. This is a symbol of trust. That as you choose not to always take everything to the limits, this is a symbol of God. I'm going to trust you with my life. It doesn't all depend on me. Why? Because I serve and orient my life around the creator of the universe, the one who created everything, that has all the resources. He's got it. I can trust him. That's the heart behind Sabbath. So the first four commandments are designed to, to set humanity in proper relationship with the creator of the universe. The next five commandments go on to detail how this impacts the way we treat our fellow human. And let me just say, this is, this is why these Ten Commandments were so amazing, so revolutionary 3,500 years ago. Because when these laws were given 3,500 years ago in these ancient cultures, the value system that we find in these laws hadn't even been thought up at that time in the nations that surrounded this. This is actually an amazing historical fact. It's a significant evidence to skeptics, or it should be, that you need to pay attention that if a, just a, a human being, if Moses was just coming up with this, he would have never written this stuff. Nobody would have made this up at this point in history. And see, here's why this is so revolutionary. He is telling his people at Sinai, you're my people. And in fact, there, there's not going to be a king or a monarch over you or a religious leader or a prophet that decides what the law is for everyone. I am your divine lawgiver. And listen to this. You're going to be a nation ruled by law, not by a king. And more than that, no one is above the law. This concept, I can't tell you how revolutionary this was at this point in history of the world. No one is above the law. On the Sabbath commandment, he, he uh, you know, because where you and I minds go is, well, um, okay, I, I can't work on the seventh day, but man, I, I need to get ahead and, you know, do better than the Joneses next door. And so I'll just have my kids go do the work. Everybody likes making your kids do the chores, right? Come on, you do. I do too. Um, but honestly, it's more work half the time getting your kids to do the chore than just doing it yourself. I'm a, we're dealing with that in my family right now. Maybe you are too. <laughs> but he says, no, you, you can't go out and make your kids go plow the field for you so you can get ahead and, you know, technicality keeping it. In fact, servants, you can't have your servants go out. Now, what you have to understand, um, actually, it's interesting because God, from the very beginning, as he says, I brought you out of, of the land of slavery, one of the most repeated um, commandments in all of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, is to be careful that you don't abuse the foreigner um, in your midst. Why? Because you have know what it's like to be in slavery. And from the very beginning, we see God's um, his heart against that he does not like slavery from the very beginning. 
Now, in, a cult, in this culture, slavery was a very different thing. Many people, you know, with no security nets, um, no uh, social services, all these different things, if you fell into destitute poverty, one of the only ways that you could uh, survive in this culture was to go basically sell yourself, sometimes your family, into slavery. But from the very beginning, the kind of slavery we think of in, you know, the 19th century, um, which was, you know, stealing, going to another continent and stealing people from a people group and taking them back into slavery. It was forbidden and outlawed in God's law from the very beginning. So he shows his heart against the concept of slavery from the very beginning. But at the very beginning, he shows, hey, you can't even have your servant go out and do the work. Everyone gets a day off. No one is above the law. See, this is the basis of human rights. At the beginning, in Genesis 1, he tells us that every person is made in the image of God. But then in the Ten Commandments and his law, he spells out how that applies to people and how we should treat other people. And part of the implication of this is that everyone had rights and equal status before God. It's a powerful concept. It's unheard of in ancient civilization. Even in some modern civilizations, um, places and cultures and in in Eastern nations, uh, the delete people, some of these untouchables, where you're born into a caste system and that's where you're stuck. And in ancient times, this was, this was almost unthinkable. God said this in his society. You know, everyone has status. In a society, in a culture that was highly dominated by, by men, he said women and servants even have status. Everyone has rights under God's law. This concept didn't really exist in the ancient world in this form. In fact, God actually told them he didn't even want them to have a king. He said, I'll be your king, and I'm giving you this law that you order your society by. He said, but this was really hard for him. God knew that uh, when a king or a monarch creates a rule, they feel free to break their own rule. They feel like they're above the law. And you do too in your own house, right? You're like, you only get one hour of screen time. And then after eight, you're like, I think I'll binge watch five hours of this Netflix show. <laughs> but not your kid, right? <laughs> We're highly consistent human beings, aren't we? I remember I've told this story before, but I remember when my kid was little, he'd, he'd do little things. And, and to reward him, he'd get two chocolate chips because we didn't want to totally sugar him up. That was grandpa's job, you know. Thanks, grandpa. Um, <laughs> but in our home, he'd get two chocolate chips. So he thought that was a great treat. And uh, then one night, he comes out of his room after he's supposed to be asleep, and I'm sitting on the couch with a bowl of chocolate chips. <laughs> and he's like, what do you got there, Dad? Chocolate? <laughs> he sniffed it out. I'm like, yes. Go to bed. Why? Because I created the rule. I can break my own rule, right? And see, God knew that kings would do the same thing. And so that's why this concept of law at the time, a law instead of a king, it was so revolutionary, so hard for people to wrap their minds around. In fact, several generations, the people demanded a king. God says, you don't want a king. He's going to tax you to death. He's going to, you know, draft your kids into war, and he's going to build himself giant palaces and lead you down paths you don't want to go. And sure enough, after they got a king. The kings corrupted the nations and led them away from God and his law and away from freedom of serving God under the law that he's given and into the bondage of idolatry. And eventually the nation of Israel was taken out of the land. So this concept of law was, was so odd for them, but God preserved this text. God preserved this idea that there is a divine law that flows from objective truth. And there was a group of people in 1776, 3,000 plus years later, a group of men that decided to launch an experiment in freedom. Said, we're going to actually establish a nation with a foundation of divine law, that there won't be a king or a queen or a prophet, or a priest that's above the law. They recognized that 
the application of God's laws changes over history as history progresses. Sometimes the applications change. It's, we live in a different society in a different day and age, but everyone had value and rights. And so they penned these very famous words that we celebrate this weekend. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. This is a revolutionary moment in history. See, at this point in history, in 1776, this concept was revolutionary. This is a day and age where you had kings and monarchs all around the world making law. And the founders of our country said, not in this law. We recognize where do rights come from? Not from the state. There are inalienable rights that come from God himself. And the purpose of the state, the purpose of government, you need government, otherwise everybody just does whatever they want. Anarchy, you have anarchy, you have chaos, and you descend into tyranny. Because people who live in anarchy, anarchy draws a void that uh, people will choose tyranny over anarchy every day. So it's not that. You need a people that are governed by a higher law and that governments are set up to not, not to give people rights, but to secure the rights that God gives. This is a revolutionary concept. I know you take it for granted. You take it for granted, but it's a revolutionary concept. We take this for granted because we are steeped in, in thinking that has come from generations of people that followed a Judeo-Christian perspective that's tied all the way back. And so we just think of equal rights as, duh, that has not been the, court, the, the truth. That has not been um, reality through the course of history. But God says, everybody's created in my image. All have value in my eyes. And so the people are the founders of our nation established a law on how to treat people with dignity and respect. And here's what we see around the world. In nations where there is no recognition of divine law, human rights abuses escalate. This couldn't be illustrated more graphically than the last century, last century and almost a half around the world as you had ideologies that sprung up that denied the very existence of God, um, led by men like Marx and Lenin that saw everything as a power struggle and saw the state as the ultimate authority and actually in the name of utopia of creating a better society, brutally murdered and killed over 100 million people in a century. See, we, we think of the Holocaust, which is tragic and, and awful and a genocide and unthinkable, but we don't always think so much about communism, which actually killed so many more people in the last century, brutally murdered people. Hitler um, himself denied the, the idea of, of this being God's law, of that scripture we just read. In fact, uh, there's a professor writing about him. He said that rejecting the biblical commandments was what human beings must do. Hitler saw it that way. He said, if I can accept the divine commandment, he wrote, it's this one, thou shalt preserve the species. And it was the rejection of God's divine law, of a divine lawgiver, and the fact that there was a set of principles that were higher than the state and what we made up that led him into the Holocaust that allowed that scar on history to happen. See, and as our nation struggles in cultural wars and our, sort of the conscience of our nation shifts, this really is, I think, at the core of the critical discussion we need to have as a nation is, is there a divine lawgiver who defines objective truth? I think this is at the, at the root of so many of the things that we're facing right now. Is there a divine law giver? Is there really truth or is it just your truth, my truth? 
And the message of the Bible is there is a divine lawgiver and there is a creator God who establishes and says what truth is and what reality is. And you can either align your life with the way he says reality works or you can war against that and experience the consequences. One author writes this, the American experiment is in ordered liberty, this is a hard one for me. Words are hard sometimes, right? I've watched this YouTube video and there's this thing and whenever he messes up, he goes, words is hard. It's got this little thing, but uh, so I need one of those. We just have a button we push and there's a little jingle. It presupposes the existence of a supreme being who instituted a universal moral code. As the Declaration of Independence reminds us, this code is self-evident. Indeed, the Declaration enshrined this simple yet powerful truth that unalienable rights or basic human rights do not come as a gift from a ruling elite such as kings and rulers, parliaments and legislatures, judges and courts. Rather, natural rights come from God. See, and I think if our nation as a whole loses sight of the fact that there is a divine lawgiver and a source of objective truth, we will necessarily move to a point where those who establish the law feel like they're over the law and ultimately human freedom will suffer. Human rights will suffer. So the first four commandments have to do with honoring God. Honoring God. The next commandment, Who do you honor next? Who would you guess? Well, most religious systems around the world, if this were penned by a a human, the next one to honor would be the prophet. And if I I think if Moses was writing this, you would want him to, uh, as he writes it down, to say, and next, honor the prophet and pay attention to him and make sure you bring him lots of gifts and presents at Christmas. I don't think... Hanukkah, sorry, Uh, wrong, never mind. But it's not, in fact, here's what he says. Honor your father and your mother. Do you find it interesting that right at the heart of the Ten Commandments is is honoring your father and mother? It's it's the only commandment actually that comes along with the promise that your that you your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. I want you to honor your mother and father so that you may live long in the land that the Lord is giving you. We t- we tend in the United States to individualize everything. And I think there's an application of that too when it comes to human lives. Uh, there's this meme going around of, of this little like 10-year-old kid on a skateboard getting ready to like jump on at the top of this giant hill and it rolls down onto this like pier and like into the ocean. Have anybody seen that? And it's in the caption is, this is why boys need parents. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Especially for men, your like brain doesn't develop that risk assessment until you're 25. So um pay attention to your parents. You may live longer in life. There's a good chance of it. But there's a much deeper and much bigger application here. It's much more significant because God recognizes that as the family goes, so goes the nation. As the family goes, so goes the nation. If you know anything about history, you know that what happens within the family goes on to impact the whole nation. And if you go on to abandon the faith of your parents and you know, dismiss your parents' value system and rebel against it, you will descend and other things will become idols in your life. And as a people, you will not be a light to the nations and I will actually remove you from the land. And whenever a culture rebels against the generation that's come before and the value set of the generation that comes before it, what we see is nations decline. It's inevitable. All right, so at this point, and we're going to move quickly, we get, God finally gets to the commands we all remember. Way down at the end, after all these others, after he said all these others, he gets to the ones, the specific things about honoring other people. Gets to the ones that you remember. Don't kill, don't steal. You remember those. You shall not murder. Honor other people's lives. You cannot take 
innocent life unjustly. You, you shall not murder. And in Hebrew, it has the same, uh, they have two words for killing, killing and murder, and a similar understanding to what we would have in, in, in our nation. You cannot take innocent life unjustly. You cannot steal a life. You shall not commit adultery that you honor your marriage and you honor other people's marriage because, again, what happens in the family impacts the whole society. That you honor the marriage because marriage is at the heart and the core of a strong society. And marriage is a reflection of, of actually the relationship of God our, and of Jesus to his church. You honor marriage. You shall not steal, that you honor other people's stuff. At the very beginning, God in his law implies or he, he speaks of, makes it very clear that there is private ownership. And nobody, not a government, no group can take unjustly what belongs to you. Everyone had ownership. This is the powerful revolutionary concept in history. And in and in Systems of government around the world that descend into tyranny, private property rights are always disputed. God sets this up right at the very beginning. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. This is about honoring reputations. Don't lie about the people around you. Don't gossip. Don't impute their character. You're not God. You don't know their heart. Don't bear false testimony that you would live your life truthfully because truth is at the core of trust. As you teach your kids about telling the truth, it's not just don't lie because it's bad. It, that's true. It's don't lie because lying breaks trust. And at the heart of any great relationship is trust. And so that's why this is such a big deal that God puts it in the top 10. So all these, and listen to this, because these are the ones you remember. These are the love your neighbor side of the commandments. Remember what Jesus said, the top commandments to tie back. How do you summarize this? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's, if you want to summarize all 10 of them, here's how you can summarize them. All these love your neighbor commands are tied back to the existence of God and to divine law. When you separate them, what's your basis for saying how you treat each other? In fact, there was a famous atheist last century that I think in a moment of real intellectual honesty, he wrote this. He's trying to reconcile the fact that he has a value system from his belief system, philosophical belief system. He said, I cannot see how to refute the argument for the subjectivity of all ethical values but I refuse to accept the only thing wrong with wanton cruelty is that I don't like it. But this is a very intellectually honest position. I don't like my conclusions, but apart from divine law, I can't really say if it's all just happened by, by chance processes. I've got no rational thing to say what you're doing is wrong. Murder is wrong. Stealing's wrong. I mean, we could try to make an argument about what's best for society and how that all evolved, um, but ultimately, if I have the chance to do it and can get away with it and nobody else sees, why is that wrong? And Huxley goes, um, I don't really have a good reason other than I don't like it and I don't like that reason. <laughs> There's got to be something more. So God goes through the commands, honor God, honor other people. And then he gets to this command that if some human wrote this, this command would not be in the Ten Commandments. Like I said, the, the, uh, the, the Tenth Commandment would be honor, honor your prophet and bring him lots of stuff. But it's not. Here's, here's where he goes. And, and, and get how strange this is that this is in a code of law. This is in the, you know, the sort of the chapter headings for what would be the laws of this nation that God is establishing. He says this, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. 
covet. To covet means to desire strongly. This isn't just saying, man, nice house, nice car, and recognizing that. No, this is to, to see that and have something inside of you that won't let you rest internally because you have to have what they have. This is that thing that drives so many people's debt, consumer debt, because you have to have what they have so that you will be seen as they're seen. This is what drives you sometimes to drive your kids so hard because you look at their kids and their kids are performing at this level and your kids are your kids. This is what drives that sometimes. Coveting, coveting. But here's the thing that's so strange about this. This, this command is where God says, you're accountable to me for what you think and what goes on in your heart. When you have that feeling arise inside of you, when someone that you know, you've got that person, they were always competition in high school, and now you're, now you're 40, and they're doing so much better, and then you hear there's a bump in the road or something goes wrong, and there's something icky inside that you feel that goes, huh, feels kind of happy about that, and you're like, ooh, where'd that come from? God says, pay attention to that stuff in your heart. You're accountable to me for what is in your heart. Do you know no one has ever gone to prison for violating this commandment? It's the unenforceable law. Why is it there? It's there because God is saying, if you don't guard what is in your heart and your motives, it will lead to you breaking all these other ones. Because if you want it bad enough, you're going to steal to get it. If you want it bad enough, you're going to kill to get it. If you want him or her bad enough, you're going to, to commit adultery to get it. So guard your heart. You're accountable to me for what's in your heart. Sounds a lot like what Jesus said as he comes later and he riffs on this, right? And he says, it's out of the heart that all these evil things come. Sexual immorality, greed, hatred. It comes from the heart, it comes from within. You need God to actually move in your life and change your heart. You need to pay attention to what's going in your heart. Here's the bottom line. If you want to take this home, and I'd love to have you remember this and think about this this week as we celebrate freedom, that if you want to sum up this text that has been so influential in societies for thousands of years now, here's how you would sum it up. Honor God, honor others, and guard your heart. You would honor God in putting him front and center in your life and not letting other things come before him in importance or in what you serve, that you would honor others, that you would treat them the way that you would want them to treat you, that you would love God, you would love your neighbor as yourself, and that you would pay attention to what's happening in your heart and allow the Holy Spirit to begin to work on those things that are happening in your heart. Let me just say, wouldn't it be amazing to live in a nation where everyone did this? Wouldn't it be amazing? John Adams writes this, he says, suppose a nation in some distant region should take their Bible for their only law book and every member should regulate, every individual member, this is key, should regulate his conduct by the precepts there exhibited. Every member would be obliged in conscience to temperance, frugality, industry, justice, kindness, and charity towards his fellow man and to piety, love, and reverence towards the almighty God. What a utopia. What a paradise would this region be? See, and he has a recognition of something. That utopia isn't found in somehow, you know, the state creating a perfect, no. That flourishing and joy and the kind of society you want to live in comes when a bunch of people choose to sub willingly submit their lives to divine law and recognize that there is a God who created me and who has a right to speak what is truth and who has a right to speak how I need to regulate and live my life and who offers me his Holy Spirit through faith and trust in Jesus so that I have the ability to live that way, so that I don't have to be a slave to all the things that formerly enslaved me. And I get to live this way, not so I can be 
good enough to somehow tip the scales and earn favor with God and earn my salvation. No, that's a free gift. Just like he rescued and redeemed his people before they came into this covenant of law with him. He offers you a free gift where you receive eternal life through faith and trust, not in what you've done, but in what Jesus did for you when he died and rose again. You place your faith and trust fully in that. But then you live your life according to the law of love. It's the way Paul summarized all these laws. The Holy Spirit in you, inspiring as you cooperate, and sometimes it's hard, and sometimes you have to battle hard against your desires, and you have to battle hard against sin, but it's cooperating with the Holy Spirit to say, I'm going to live my life in that way. And it's a joy because it's in gratitude for the salvation and freedom in life I have. See, freedom isn't doing whatever the heck you want. True freedom is living your life in proper relationship with the one who made you and loves you and wants what's best for you. And my heart for you this Independence Day weekend is that you would take that to heart and we would be a church and all the believers in this valley would be a church that truly lived this way and we would see it change our community and the ripples would go on to change our world. Would you stand? Father, I just want to say thank you for my friends. Lord, thank you for this amazing country you've given us um, the ability to live in and, and the freedom we have, the freedom to gather and worship you. Lord, I ask that as we celebrate America and freedom this weekend, that we would be very aware of the fact that true freedom is a gift from you that we would receive the forgiveness that comes in you. And then we would walk out the freedom that you desire us to live on personally. And that the, the ripples of that would go on to change our world. Lord, would you draw hearts in our, in our land back to you, I pray. Would you turn the tides? Would you bring revival? Because we know ultimately that's the only hope and answer for our nation. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.